You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lithub.com. Part 2 of Paul Holden Graber's Conversation with Cheryl Strade. Well, what's so interesting is that here you have... Um, of your own accord, um, based on on what you've seen online and what your your publishers have seen, you have, um, in a sense, lifted out of your work your own work and decontextualized it in some way or given it a new context. Because people now coming on upon, as I did just a few days ago, brave enough, are discovering a work by you made of many works by you in a very different way and will probably read those very sentences, many of which I knew before, of course, having spoken to, to you many years back, but reading them in a, in a new way. Um, yeah. The, 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 the new context gives them new meaning, the same way uh, in, in which um, you know, rereading a certain work um, that we that we came upon years ago, we we read it depending on where we are in our, both our lives and geographically, um, in a new way. And some, as we were saying earlier, some works work uh, later on in li- life, and some really become a disappointment. Um, yes, indeed. You, and I'm 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 wondering. Which you, you mentioned Anais Nin. Um, have there been other works that you've gone back to that that no longer function for you, and equally works you've gone back to and and that that work for you in a, in a, in a new and enchanted way? Works maybe that you reread constantly because they because you need them. Yes, I. I... You know, some some works only deepen over time in how much I love them. I would say my favorite book is Alice Munro's Lives and Girls of Women, which I first read in my early twenties, and it's still good. It's still it's it gets better. You know, I, I loved it the first time I read it. I felt truly astonished by it, and and when I read it now, you know, sometimes I'll I'll go to that book because I. I want to just look at one part of a story or just you know, and then what I find is i can't I can't stop reading it. I read it all over again, and that that to you know she's a writer to me who has deepened over time but i but I think you know some of those books, like the Unusman, some of those books I was reading in my twenties too I was trying to read um books that that spoke to my reality at the time, you know, like I read Kerouac on the road, and I think that that I wouldn't I didn't love. The book when I read it in my twenties, but I think now I would want to throw it across the room. You know, but right? I thought it was I thought it was pretty cool in my twenties to read that book, even though I had some some real reservations about it and its portrayal of women. But but I didn't reject it, and I think now I would because you know, at, in my twenties, I was trying to uh, learn how to be a writer. I'm still learning how to be a writer, but. I do have a, a firmer uh, sort of sense of who I am, both as a person and a writer, and so I'm not um, I'm not seeking validation by books so much anymore as I as I was probably in my youth. Now I'm seeking a deeper sense of illumination, and um, well, that's so beautiful, Cheryl. That that really is so beautiful. 
between one I, I, I could imagine a whole conversation that would go between validation and illumination. Yes. Do you know what I'm speaking of? Oh yes, I mean gosh do I know. And I'm thinking from my own experience if I were to go back to Lawrence Durrell or to Hermann Hesse or to, you know, some of the, the stories of maybe Thomas Mann wouldn't quite fit, but I know that, that with Hesse, you know, if I read I mean my, my older boy now who's fourteen, I can't wait to give him Siddhartha and I can't wait to give him Death in Venice and I can't wait to give him the Alexandria Quartet. Um mm. I, I but I, I I don't know that I could read it side by side with him. Perhaps I could. I don't know. I, I might try. Um, those, I mean, Hesse in particular, you, uh, I, the, the Steppenwolf, and I'm, I'm trying to remember all the titles of, the, of those years. Um, I don't know how it would sit with me now. And I, in a, in a way, I, I want it to sit with me more as a memory of something I loved than in a rediscovery now. I, I would be frightened by it. I, I'm, I'm frightened by the notion that it would be so disappointing or that, in a way, by not loving it now, I would betray it. Yes. Yes. That's it. That's exactly it. Like, I, I don't think that we have to revisit every book we used to love. Uh, it doesn't have to hold up for us over time in our lives from a critical perspective. I think things can hold up. Um, you know, it, it really is very much. I love, I love your comparison to people because I've always experienced books like that too. I'm sitting here right now looking. Um, I'm in my bedroom, and I don't think that there's a room in my house that isn't, um, full, you know, that, that doesn't have bookshelves. And I'm looking, I'm looking at books. And they, I experience their spines, those titles and author names on the spines, as as friends, as old friends. And um, they're familiar to me in a way that, that, that people are. And there are books that, you know, I read 20 years ago and probably will never read again, but I don't want to get rid of them because I want them in my house, I want them in my life. But I don't need to, you know, it's, it's like the, 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 the people you used to love. You don't need to, you know, call them every week in order to remember that you loved them once. And, um, and in fact, if you did try to constantly make contact with some of those old loves, it would probably dissolve any feelings of affection you had to begin with. And it certainly would put in, in jeopardy uh, perhaps one's, one's present life if one stayed in touch with everybody. And, uh, and in, in some way, uh, the, the bookshelves are, are easier. I mean, even though they crowd our lives, they're easier to deal with than every single person if one kept them present in one's life. I'm curious. I can't not ask you, Cheryl. Um, what are the friends you're seeing now in, in your bedroom? What, what are those spines? Give me a few titles just to entice me. Well, there's, um, of, of course, one of my favorite uh, books is Flannery O'Connor's 
the collected stories. That's that's one of. Yes. Have you have you read? Um, are, do, are you a Flannery O'Connor? You know, I don't know well enough, but here, I mean, what is great is from our conversation today. I feel like that that book of Alice Munro you mentioned. I have to read. I haven't read yet, so this is. Do. I will. I will. You know, usually it's the other way around, Cheryl. People always say that when they talk to me, they feel like they have a stack of books piling up on their desk. But now the contrary has happened. I have a stack of books that I have to get now after speaking to you. You do. And, you know, another old friend I'm looking at, um, Edward Abbey's Desert Solitaire. Have you read that book? No, no. I always say I have holes in my culture so it can breathe. But here you, here you are. No, I haven't, but I will. Now, this book, this is, now this is a great example of, <clears throat> this is a book I read. Excuse me, I have to clear my throat. <clears throat> this is a book I read when I was, gosh, 19 or 20. I was a kid. And I loved it, and I remembered that I loved it. And then very recently, about a year ago, I, for some reason, picked it up again off my bookshelf. And I, it had been so long that I thought, you know, maybe this actually isn't such a good book. I think I, what, what prompted me to pick it up again is, having written Wild, uh, I'm now asked often about what are your favorite books about the wild, what are your favorite books about nature. And I had mentioned uh, Edward Abbey's Desert Solitaire, and then I thought, well, gosh, am I, am I recommending a good book or not? And I started to read it again, <laughs> and it is so good. It is so good. It holds up, and I love it even more now than I did when I read it on 47. So I read it a long time ago. So this is a great book. How wonderful. I, I, I will read it. I will read it. I will read it. I will have the, the pleasure of reading it for the first time, which is such a different thing than your experience with it. I love what you said. Am I recommending a good book? And, you know, because we, we, we don't always know, because we often recommend books on the basis of, of an old memory. Um, and, Absolutely. and, and we, you know, if, if we were to reread them, I think many of the books we would have recommended, uh, we have recommended, we, we wouldn't recommend. Now, what, what, what else do you see? Well, give me another two or three books there on, the, on, on your shelf in, in your bedroom. I, I'm looking right now at Gloria Steinem. Gosh, here's another book read a million years ago, um, The uh, uh, Outrageous Acts and Everyday Rebellion. Yes. Which I read when I read it. I was living in Ireland, in Dublin. I had just gotten married. I had just turned twenty, and um, I was. I haven't read that book since then. But I recently interviewed Gloria Steinem on stage, and I, you know, sort of picked that book up to to page through it again, and um, and it, it's. It, I, I'm still delighted in it. Um, I'm looking at all of my. You know, this is a kind of strange uh, thing that that maybe might be a little unexpected because obviously, so many of my best, my best, I was going to say my best friends. What I mean is my old favorite books that I love are literary works. They're collections of poetry and stories and novels and such and essays. But my all my Lonely Planet travel guidebooks mean so much to me. I've been obsessed with travel guidebooks since I was a teenager, uh, mostly because all of those years in my 20s, I couldn't really travel much internationally, but I always wanted to. So I would read, you know, all of the books. I, I would map out the, the trip around Europe that I would take if I could take a trip around Europe. And I would, like, get it down to the day. I'd say, 
okay, I'm going to go to this city and then this place and that. You know, and, and I would study these guidebooks as if I were going to go on a trip that I never actually got to take. Oh, I love and this. I didn't make it to Europe until I was in my 40s, and I had the success with Wild that, um, that, that allowed me to, to do that kind of travel. Um, so they're really precious to me. And I was in Australia last week, and as it happens, I was at a dinner um, and seated across the table from this lovely couple, Tony and Maureen Wheeler. And when I got to talking to them, I learned that they were the founders of Lonely Planet. And I just was so excited, and I spent the entire night asking them all about their lives and how Lonely Planet came to be. So those are friends of mine, too, those guidebooks. Um, and and they are obviously in, invit, invitations to travel, but also from a, a time when you when you when you couldn't. And now I imagine that many of the travel guides you have are of places you have been to. So the the book, in a way, is a um, is is filled with the memory of the city you discovered through reading reading those guidebooks. Yes. The guidebooks, these, these Lonely Planet guidebooks, they, they express, they're, they're, to me, they represent longing and also, finally, the adventures I got to take. You know, um, you asked you asking me a moment ago um, about which quotations I love, and I, I mentioned the wild quotation. Another quotation I adore is from a, a trip, it's from a, a book of, of Susan Sontag, um, and I think it's called Unguided Tour, the story. It's in a collection of stories of hers. And she's describing a trip she didn't take. And then she has this line where she says, Just wait until now becomes then. You'll see how happy we were. Oh, that's so great. Isn't it? It's wonderful. So, you know, it's all in the tenses. Yeah, it is. Well, I think about that. That's one of the pieces of advice I always give people when they ask me about going on trips, especially um, of this sort of like a long-distance hike or a journey that's going to be hard, that you, that you know going in it's going to be hard. But I, I even think that the journeys that we that we imagine won't be hard. You know, we, uh, you, you, you take a trip to, for example, Europe. You think you're just going to have a fun time. And anyone who's traveled knows that it, even the funnest trips are not always fun. There's, there's misery and there's inconvenience and there's struggle and strife and sometimes real suffering on the course of any uh, trip worth its, <laughs> worth its salt. And I always say, just remember that it's the, it's really the hard times that you're going to then later remember the most fondly. When you That's talk right. about that trip to Thailand, you're going to laugh about the three days you spent in your hotel room, uh, you know, ill with some sort of stomach bug. Or, uh, you know, you're going to remember that one time my husband and I got in this enormous argument in the Bangkok airport. And I swear, when we talk about that trip to Thailand, that is the thing we laugh the hardest about is remembering that, that argument we got into. Yeah, that's rather rather different than different uh, way of looking at things. And when we say we're going to do such and such a place, um, we, you know, which is the the common way of expressing our travels, and so often, uh, the, as you say, the, those moments of 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 strife, of of difficulty, end up turning into an incredible story you tell. 
something that you really, really remember that stands out. Yes. Uh, tell me, are there... Are I don't, I've written about that kind of suffering. My feet hurt, and this and that and the other thing. But it's drama. You know, difficulty is drama. Are there, are there travel writers you particularly love? And then I'll tell you of one that I adore. Oh, gosh. I love, I love travel books. Um, and, you know, my mind, of course, whenever I'm asked things like this, my mind goes blank. Okay, let me tell you who I adore. I adore Jan Morris. I don't know if you've read her. I don't. What has she written? So Jan Morris used to be James Morris. And then in 1973, went from being a man to being a woman to, to Jan Morris, was known before that for getting the scoop for the Queen of England of the ascension of the Everest. And she wrote as Jan Morris, possibly the most beautiful book I know about any city anywhere in the world. It's called Trieste and the Meaning of Nowhere. I want you to. Uh, I will read all your recommendations. You must read this one. I promise you. I okay. Will. We, we, we both have homework to do. Now that I've given you some time to think, um, does, does some travel writer, I, I don't particularly care for that term, but does somebody who writes about place mean very much to you? Well, there are so many people who write beautifully of travel, um, but I would say that the, my favorite book of the last few years about travel uh, is uh, Pam Houston's book, Contents May Have Shifted. And it's a really, each, each chapter is uh, set in a different place, and some of them are on airplanes. And, you know, it's really this, this wonderful sort of collage narrative of all of these places that this, this Pam character, it's, it's a novel, and yet it's also kind of a memoir. It's, it's a little bit of both, you know, that it's, this character is named Pam, uh, and she writes about all of these different places that she's gone. It's a really uh, sort of uh, soulful and deep book that's both about place and also the, the, the people we find in ourselves in the context of new places, which I've always found to be the most fascinating aspect of travel writing. I, I mean, I think that that's why we recoil a bit at that term, because, you know, in some ways we're, we're amending um, the, that, uh, the idea that it's like sort of not full literature. It's, a, it's about only about place. But of course, the best travel writing does what the best literature does. And it, it tells us what it means to be human. And what it means to, to get out of ourselves. In a new way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's outside of the self. But we, when we go outside of the self, we're also asked to go deeper into the self, I think. Yeah. Um, I've been wondering, you know, looking at, at Brave Enough and also speaking not very long ago with Elizabeth Gilbert, I've been wondering what is happening now that certain books and certain writers are called upon to to write books that are classified in bookstores as self-help, but are obviously so much more. And what, how you 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 see this this need now in readers to to find those mentors who will help them um, with these types of books that 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 do offer us if we 
if we allow ourselves to be to be to be offered this gift of of consolation of help it is interesting i i i think of myself as an accidental self-help writer when my book tiny beautiful things was published which is a collection of my dear sugar yes. device columns and when that was published i i saw that it was it was in the essay section it was in the self-help section and you know on the on the new york times it was on that list it was you know miscellaneous and and um, advice, that kind of, that, that catch-all list that they have, it wasn't on the nonfiction list, which I thought was strange and interesting, because I thought I was writing literary essays, and yes, I was also giving advice, and I was, you know, responding to real letters that people had written to me. Um, and so I, I understand how that's interpreted as self-help. I mean, I get it that, that you know, I'm using writing to actually try to, at least try to help somebody, and yet... You're so right that like, here again, you know, why, I'm not quite sure of that line because, um, because I think that the things that were, that are most helpful, if, if it's true that, for example, my dear sugar columns are helpful, I think the aspects of them that are most helpful are not, um, the pieces of, you know, direct instruction I give people on what I think they should do or not do, but rather that, that wider, more searching quality that we find in, in literary work that has to do with illuminating the questions. Well, you know, I've been, I've been thinking, um, since I spoke with Elizabeth Gilbert and you today and a number of other people, of, of maybe having an evening where I would invite all of you to come together and, and think about this, this notion of a rewriting that seems to be happening now of a book I cherish perhaps nearly more than any, um, and I'm so not alone in cherishing it, is uh, Rainer Maria Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet, which... which I love that book. I love that book, and I haven't reread it recently, but I know that it wouldn't betray me, and I know that I would discover shards and little pieces and bits and pieces of my former self and bits and pieces of my future self in that book when rereading it. But it seems like there's a movement afoot to, to, um, to write and rewrite that book. Well, what's interesting, I, I never, that, that book would be, um, that's on myself too, and it's one of my old returns. And I feel about it exactly the way you expressed so beautifully. That's, I would find shards and pieces of myself as well in that book. But we don't think of that book as self-help. That's right. And yet, and yet it, 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 it is. I mean, it is and it isn't. I mean, that book, I read it in a way that ended up being incredibly helpful to me as a young writer. And, I, and, and yet we, we call that literature, and yet Tiny Beautiful Things, it, it's, you know, I think what's happened is it's not, I think it's, a, it's, it's, the, it's the age in which it was published. Mm-hmm. I think that, uh, that that term self-help probably didn't even exist when Rilke published that book. I doubt it. No, I think it's become part of our, our modern um, vernacular in a way that, that we just, we say, okay, this is, you know, this is the self-help genre, which contains so many different things. You know, I think that there are books that are legitimately self-help, like, um, you know, books about pregnancy or, um, you know, uh, menopause or diet or, you know, those, those are, that are, that are far more, uh, sort of educational and instructional in nature, which are slightly different than like Elizabeth Gilbert's 
Big Magic or My Tiny Beautiful Things or, or, or those books that are um, that do have absolutely a foot in the literary world that aren't just there for education and instruction. That's right. That's right. And 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 in a way, I'm 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 disputing the 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 way in which things are classified. Um, yeah. And at the same time, I I, I feel that. Both your work and and Elizabeth's work, though though hardly in need of of validation, needs to be viewed in a in a different light than than where it is put in a in a bookstore. I think it, it I I I would I would hate for people to to think less of it because of the way it was it was. Um, it was categorized because so much of so you know that that's partly what I'm thinking about. Also, I'm thinking about the the the, the urgency on the part of the readers to to find in books those moments that will be that will help them, that will illuminate their life, that that there is something still available and porous in us that wants to change, and that words, as as we begin our life by being spoken to, and then we learn to speak ourselves, that words can can redirect and shift our, ourselves, as it were. Indeed. They and can, it, and they have, and they do. And I and I would cite among my you know the books that helped me, none of them were self help unless I guess you're going to say real good with self help uh, you know I, it's 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 things like Alison Rose Lives of Girls and Women and and Edward Abbey's Desert Solitaire and so many collections of poetry I wrote about in Wild carrying Audrey and Richard's The Dream of a Common Language with me on my whole hike uh, if that's not self help. I don't know what is, and yet, you know, and yet, of course, it's not self-help. It's it's, po- it's poetry, and but maybe what we need to think about is not not rethinking what we think self-help is, but rethinking what we think literature is. And I really believe when we when we say art has power, books have power. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about their ability to impact our lives, our their ability to impact the way. We think about ourselves and the way that we think about other people and the way we think about the world. And I think some people want to distance themselves from sort of art's usefulness because it's not very high-minded. It, it, it doesn't seem, you know, sophisticated. Once you start thinking of art in the way I just proposed, what you're doing is you're, you're giving everyone the power to have art, to be art, to make art. And, you know, and I believe, I totally believe in that, but I think it, it, it disturbs maybe um, some people's sense of, Sophistication, or, or I, I guess, a sort of art being in the hands of, you know, like the best art is art that we can't quite understand, um, which I don't agree with. I think that sometimes there are lo- there's lots of art I love that I couldn't understand for a long time. I'm not I'm not saying art has to be simple, but I think that really um, that we that we that art needs to be useful in our lives, or else it really um, doesn't doesn't have much power. It's it's saps of its power if it doesn't mean anything to us. Cheryl, it's been absolutely a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much. talking to you. Oh, thank you so much. I, I can't wait for when we next meet. You are such a, a great conversationalist. I would talk to you anytime. And I love your idea of gathering together writers for, for an on-stage conversation who, who sort of crosses divides 
between the sort of self-help world and the literary. Well, I, I, I can't wait to, to talk to you more about it and to, to plot and plan some magic together. Thank you. Yes. Well, Paul, I'm, I'm honored that you included me in your, on your show. Oh, it's, 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 it's wonderful. Thank you so much, and, and um, happy holidays to you. Yes, happy holidays to you and your family. Thank you. Wonderful one. Bye-bye. Criminal Broads is a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. And I'm the host, Tori Telfer. I'm a true crime writer who started Criminal Broads after realizing that I was uncovering far too many out-of-control and terrifying stories about criminal women to fit in a single book. So, if you like stories about female cult leaders, con women, women who undergo (laughs) seven sessions of plastic surgery to avoid arrest for 14 years and 11 months... Uh, women who hung out with Bonnie and Clyde, or serious speculation about the deranged theory that Jack the Ripper was actually a woman, I think you'll like this podcast. Look for Criminal Broads on your favorite podcast listening app, or follow along at Instagram.com slash Criminal Broads, where I post a lot of photos so you can look deep into the eyes of some of the murderesses we'll be talking about. See you there! (laughs) 